And now for your listening pleasure, here's Polizzi and Rose, PNR with This Old Marketing. Take it away, boys. Well, hello, content marketers. I'm Robert Rose, and welcome to episode number 114 of PNR's This Old Marketing, recorded Monday, January 18th, 2016. Well, we lost one of the greats last week, folks. With the way that music and the world of entertainment has changed, it makes you wonder if there can ever be somebody like David Bowie, a true Renaissance man. My very first David Bowie album wasn't an album, actually. It was a 45 single of Space Oddity, and the B-side of that single was a song called The Wild-Eyed Boy from Free Cloud, one of the many songs that most people don't know, but is still today one of my absolute Bowie favorites. I immediately went out and bought every single album I could get my hands on, including his first, under his real name, of course, of Davy Jones. I would become a Bowie fanatic, watching him become the man who sold the world and the rock icon Ziggy Sardust and the Thin White Duke. And David Bowie also introduced me to an entire world of artistic musical wonder. He would introduce me to Brian Eno, to Mick Ronson, to Lou Reed, to Nile Rodgers, and, of course, Iggy Pop. He was an actor, including cult midnight movies like The Hunger and the incredibly depressing Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, and of course as the Goblin King in Labyrinth. And most forget that he was actually receiving stunning reviews in playing John Merrick, the Elephant Man on Broadway. He was an innovator and a performance artist known as a chameleon, which he didn't really get, saying that he thought of himself as quite the opposite of a chameleon, as something that tried to blend in. But from Ziggy to the man who fell to earth, to his thin white duke, to the ambiguous sexuality, his artistry has often been repeated and never really duplicated. He was also an entrepreneur, of course, and people forget that in 1998, David Bowie started his own ISP, providing full internet service as well as an online fan club, giving members the ability to fully customize their own homepage. Yeah, David Bowie provided content management for the web before anybody else did. Cool. And above all else, that was him. Cool. Plain cool. He was the coolest of the cool. The way he talked, the way he held himself, the way he dressed, the way he did everything was just cool. And he never lost it. Somehow that dude managed to stay cool for 50 years. And a kid like me, while I'm sad he's gone, I'm more glad that he was here. As he said himself, there's a star man waiting in the sky. He's told us not to blow it because he knows it's all worthwhile. Let the children boogie. And now it's time for us to boogie. And for that, it's time for me to bring in my friend, my colleague, my co-host, the thin white duke who fell to earth for content marketing, Mr. Joe Polizzi. How are you, my friend? Hello, sir. And, uh, you know, it was interesting at his album, new album, was number one this week. <clears throat> it was, it's, and of course I have it, and it's fantastic. It's is just, it really? It's one, is, oh, it's wonderful. Is it worth? Is it worth getting? Well, I'll tell you this. Here's so, as a Bowie <laughs> fan, I'm mostly a fan of the Ziggy, uh, you know, uh, Diamond Dogs, sort of the harder rock and roll stuff. Mm-hmm. And so this is more of the mellow sort of thin white duke stuff i would say you know sort of very cerebral and all that kind of stuff so it's not my favorite bowie but it's 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 really it's it you know it's great it's it's david bowie it's awesome you know so but yeah no it's really good it's really really good yeah what's the i saw a post on facebook like what's the thing with 69 year old brits with cancer yeah I mean, right. that's that's like yeah, exactly. not good like, right yeah it's, right it's a, it's a tragedy but uh but yeah it's i mean the it's I mean, you had a different perspective of Bowie. I mean, I had the the Let's Dance 
Bowie. Of course, yeah. Um, which, you know, right out of the 80s, which, and then you have to sort of go back because even though that was, I mean, he was fantastic then, I, I don't think his best stuff was in the 80s. I think it was before then, but. Oh, of course. That's, yeah. I mean, I would, yeah. I mean, the, you know, the Let's Dance stuff was great in the 80s, and, but for me, it's all about the, it's all, it's for, for me, it's all about the glam 70s for him. You know, it was the, it was, it's Ziggy, it's Starman, it's all that kind of stuff. It's the Diamond Dogs, it's, you know, all that stuff is just classic, classic. I mean, there's, and so many influential, you know, or influences came out of that for so many different bands and artists and stuff. It's just, it's amazing. Well, I do have to say before we go moving on to the news that, that we're, all excited here at, at this old marking to, to, that you're okay, that you are, oh, yeah. that you're alive <laughs> well, and you, well. I mean, it, thank it you, my be friend. Taken lightly. I mean, yeah. why don't you just tell the little, I mean, little bit of the the story when you so, were in Turkey. So, as those of you who tuned in last week uh, heard, I went to Istanbul, um, and Istanbul is a lovely, lovely place. It was wonderful, beautiful, and I spent Monday of last week, which would have been Sunday. Um, for you guys here in the States, um, <clears throat> I spent Monday touring around the old city and basically saw everything. I saw the uh, Hagia Sophia. I saw the Blue Mosque. I saw the palace at Sultanahmet. Um, I saw the square. Um, and of course, I saw the obelisks in the square and went to the Grand Bazaar. I mean, I did all the stuff, right? It was wonderful and beautiful and all of that. And then went and did my uh, workshop, which I was teaching there uh, in Istanbul, actually on the Asian side. Um, of the Bosphorus. And the day after, Tuesday, not 24 hours later, in the exact spot I was standing was where the suicide bomber went off and killed, sadly, tragically, um, I think 10 people now is the count. Um, so, I mean, I was literally, I mean, I got all these notes, wonderful notes, by the way, thank you for all of those who checked in. And Wonderful. I finished the first session of my workshop, and there it was. People sort of say, are you okay? Are you okay? And I'm like, what? There's nothing going on. And then I checked the news, and I was like, oh, goodness gracious. And there are all, all the people at the – it's funny. All the people at the workshop were walking up to me going, yeah, sorry this is happening. It's a real bummer. I mean, they, you know, like this is like normal life for them. So they're like, yeah, it's real disappointing that this happened while you were here. I'm like, oh, okay. Oh, well – but uh, but yes, thank you. It would, it's uh, it's you know it's it's good to be safe and yeah. I mean, I'll say this. Here here's what I'll say. It's like we often think that safety is a place, and safety is not a place. I mean, you know, because quite frankly, this exact thing happened up in San Bernardino. You know, not forty miles from where I live. Sure. And yep. so safety is not a place. It's a state of mind, and and you have to you know. It, it is about being in the world these days, and the world is, you know, the world is a different place. Well, this old marketing would not be the same if it was just... Oh, thank you. Yeah, it would be... It would be... <laughs> I, I don't know what I... I mean, what would I do? Like, make a list of other people that could possibly replace you? You're, you're irreplaceable, my friend. It just, oh, that is very it would be kind over. of you to it say. It would be done. We would have it to would do something It would be very else. kind of you to say. Shall we to the news and get off of this... Uh, <laughs> yeah, people are like, get off talk of this, about something relevant or what? Death and destruction yeah, exactly. all? Yeah, all right. <laughs> Let's do it. All right, let's move on to the news. Our first article for the show comes to us courtesy of TheMediaBriefing.com, and the headline is Peak Content, The Collapse of the Attention Economy. And so, of course, that headline got my attention. And so the article opens up by saying, for a long time, we've been creating too much content, duh. 
And so much so that I think, this is the author speaking, so that I think that we've already reached peak content. I guess that's a state um, that the author feels that we've reached. The point at which the glut of things to read, watch, and listen to becomes completely unsustainable. I think Mark Schaefer would call this content shock. And in fact, in the comments, did. (laughs) Exactly. So there hasn't been enough ad revenue to sustain it for years, although I would... I would, I'll contradict that in just a second. And with 2015 ending, with such a rush of acquisitions, consolidations, and funding rounds with eye-watering valuations, 2016, he predicts, will mark the beginning of a shakeout. Um, and then he goes on, basically, in this article to talk about um, how the journalistic side of creating news has really gone wonky of creating too much, a glut of content. And uh, so what – I mean, so – this is your business, my friend. What did, what did you think of this? I think it's just interesting, and we've talked about this many times on the show, that there is, in with news-oriented content, there is so much supply of that that I, I, absolutely, if, if the, the way you monetize that supply is through advertising, you're going to get CPMs that it's just hard to make a business model out of it. I mean, there's no doubt about it. That's exactly what's happening. And more and more, as you look at some of the examples out there of, oh, we got to create more content and more content and try to drive as much traffic as possible, There's, it's just monetizing that through advertising the way that we know it now is very, very hard to do because you're just doing it on eyeballs. Yeah. Um, and I don't know how much more. I guess what I'm as they were going through like oh the Huffington Post has 500 staffers doing 1,200 pieces a day. Uh, what is it? New York Times has 1,100 people in their newsroom pumping out two 350 pieces of content per day. That was 2013, and then that has increased since then dramatically. But they're not seeing the payoff from a revenue standpoint, even though, and they're not seeing actually. You know, if you're doubling the amount of content that you're producing, you're not doubling your traffic. Sure. It's or doubling, or more importantly, doubling your revenue. It, or, uh, definitely <clears throat> not. It's yeah. incremental. There's, there's almost no way to sustain that. So you have to say at some point, you're not going to get any more incredible jumps or any kind of significant jumps in revenue. So we've got to figure out what the revenue model is, which is why so many media companies have been going to events Yeah, as sort of their... You know the cream of the crop for what they drive from a revenue standpoint. What yeah. you said, you on one part here that you disagree with. On well, the- so there's there. Well, there's a couple of things. So I think so. It's, it's funny. I in reading through the comments, you know, friend of the show certainly Doug Kessler uh, commented on this, and I agree with him. Where he was talking about, and I think a really interesting concept. You know, and I don't come from this business, so I, I don't really speak with a lot of authority here. But I liked what he was talking about how. It's the bundle versus the individual article, right? You know, we don't, we no longer buy albums, we buy songs, we no longer buy newspapers, we buy articles, and, and so on and so forth. And the publishing industry, the news industry has had a hard time monetizing the individual article um, to the same rate that it did the bundle. In other words, you know, you don't buy, you know, the, the New York Times as a, as a paper. Yeah. You know, I buy it to get the news and the sports. I don't really care about everything else, right? And so, and so on and so forth. And so, you could sort of split up your cost over a lot of things that were more or less profitable that you can't do at a digital and article level. And I think that's a really interesting challenge to me. I, the the what I said that that I took a little bit of issue with is, interestingly to me, I think it's tr- probably true that there's not been enough ad revenue to sustain it 
the I, this model. But I just saw a statistic. It's not an article that we're covering for the show, but I just saw uh, some research that said for the first time ever, ad sales, ad revenue is going to supersede and basically um, uh, over search ad spend, which I thought was a really interesting. Now, I didn't dive too deep into that article, but it uh, it strikes me that the spend itself is still there, but it's and increasing. But what we're talking about here is the amount of content increasing at such an exponential rate that it's not keeping up. In other words, both are going up, but the quantity of content is going up to such an exponential rate that it's not it's not keeping up percentage wise. Mm-hmm. And so now, whether that continues or not, I don't know. I mean, to me, this comes down to a fundamental thing of this content shock or content peak or you know whatever you want to call it. This, the really interesting thing to me here is, is in a, and he touches on it, but he still gets, I think, a little caught up in the consumption side. I don't think I don't in my personal travels and walk around life. I don't hear people that are outside baseball, in other words, people that aren't in our business, going, "Wow, you know, there's too much content out there." You know, nobody's complaining about the amount of content that's out there. Now, they might complain a little bit about the quality. They might complain that it's hard to find stuff. But nobody's saying, you know, there's too much content out there. You know, companies should reduce that. It's the creation side. And what I hear at the brand side more and more and more is that it's not that it's difficult to create basically good content. The problem is is that we're trying to create it at such a volume that it's impossible to actually even have time to focus on whether it's good or not. And so – this idea, you know, we often talk about this idea of, you know, we should reduce the amount of content and increase its quality and et cetera, et cetera. And this is a really important lesson, I think, coming out of, you know, what we can look to the media industry that's providing for us, which is you it, it, you cannot scale it. You, you know, media companies don't scale and therefore brands should recognize that, you know, creating more and more content is has become really the sort of the sort of Damocles hanging over our head you know we can therefore we do you know what I mean we've we've become so productive with content management systems and blogging tools and social suites and email tools and all these tools that have enabled us anybody to create content at scale so we do we just spend our time just churning out this ever sort of drifting pollution of digital content and Pay no mind to the the quality of it, and I think that ends up collapsing in on itself. Well, that's well, that's the issue, right? Because from let's say two thousand five to two thousand eleven, more was a business strategy. Right, that's right. It absolutely was. You could make the case for it over and over. Long tail, course, long tail, long the, tail. Like demand media right. of the world. Yep. made their made their name on made it. Made their business on long tail. Incredibly, right. incredibly profitable business. Works really, really well. And now more is not a business strategy. That's right. Uh, so th- that's the issue. I mean, we've t- we talked about this on the last couple shows where you know you and I do these workshops, and we'll say, are are you actually creating content to- that's differentiated in any way? Right. Uh, no, I'm not. Well, there's there's the issue, and that's I think what because all the it's fine. These articles all go into the USA Today's, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journals, and. Yes, there are some differentiated parts of that. But when they're just covering the news, you can get the news in a lot of places. That's right. That's I don't right. Just, and, and that's the thing. You don't just want the news. You want your favorite columnist take on that news. That's right? exactly You want it. a particular right. take, a spin, 
a story that's told in a particular way that's valuable to you. And that's if, if there's you know marketers listening to this that are not working for media companies, that's what we have to figure out. And we've got to get those, if we don't have the resources to do that now, we're probably just creating too much content. We could pull back from that to your point of we're just creating more because we can. And we've got to you know figure this thing out. The last thing I'll say on it, which I think is totally true, is talks about, I think it was this story where it was talking about how there's no, oh yeah, this is it, at the end of it, how we have to, the investing in media revenue innovation part where the Amanda Hale of VP of right. Talking yeah. Points Memo yep. talks about, you know, what if inside Columbia Journalism School, we built Columbia Publishing School. And basically the case was there's this clear path for journalism and editorial, but there's not this clear path for business models around content. I totally agree with that, <laughs> right, except for exactly. the fact that that's what we're trying to do in a lot of ways at Content Marketing Institute, right? right. That's a kind of our goal to figure out, okay, how do we really monetize content that is going to you know help us with the outcomes of our business? This is totally true in, in publishing and media, because if you want to be a publisher, let's say you want to be the publisher of a particular trade media brand you, you know used to be a magazine now it's it's some kind of trade brand out there and you're either coming up through the journalism side the editorial side or the sales side that's it right you, you i mean and probably you're it's probably the sales side because it's really it's a much harder to come up through the journalism side and get that publishing opportunity and to run you know all the the revenues operations of that group there's really not one where you could learn how do we ultimately make money off of that content, which is maybe why us marketers have a little bit of leg up um, because we're trying, well, I, we're trying yeah, to figure I mean, that out right now. Yeah, so, yeah. well, I mean, that's I and mean, we've talked about it here before where we, you know, where we've both talked about this this idea. You know, there's no reason that a business shouldn't do that as well, right? I mean, I could very easily see some business, and uh, you know, who knows what the reaction would be here. What if instead of the New York Times funding, you know, the journalism school, what if it was Starbucks, right? What if it was, you know, what if it was Coca-Cola? What if it was, um, you know, Oracle? What if it was Microsoft that that funded a basically a class or a school where people were taught how to do, you know, classic journalistic, you know, practices, writing, creative storytelling, all of that to create a new modern marketer who knows how to create an audience. Yeah, Disney should do it. Yeah, there you they've go. already got their Imagineering school. Yeah, and that's been a doing gr- that for a long time. Yeah, and now there's your first. There, there's your first good idea with Disney. <laughs> oh come on! That was just look. It, it was an easy one, but it was low. Just because it was yeah. funny doesn't mean it was right. Uh, well, to, to I'm say sorry. That. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. with Maker, especially with the you know the Maker. Studios purchase that they have, yeah, yeah, I mean, exactly. It makes perfect sense because they w- basically want to build uh, individuals and networks that have networks that know how to create amazing content, so yeah, would, and know how to monetize that. So, well, I, and you could see it too, right? You could you could see something like that also becoming an in in house competency, you know. So, you know, Capital One purchased. Uh, Monsoon Studios and um, and I'm forgetting the other one off the top of my head, but it's the uh, Adaptive Path, um, both agencies that focus on UI and UX about design. Capital One, Capital One, the financial yeah, the retail bank, the credit Isn't card that company. Interesting, you know, yeah. it's, it's funny. They so I I was just I was, I've been doing obviously a lot of content marketing world stuff lately, and Scott Carp 
was I don't know if you remember Scott Carp. Scott Carp used to be the digital digital publishing guy at the Atlantic, and he was like he did Publish 2.0. He was out there, one of the leaders of this new publishing movement. And he, I mean, he's been working at Capital One for a while. It's just interesting how they are really investing heavily in this side of the house, which just you know, kind of a long story short is. To your point, this is not going to come from the publishing school from the no. schools right. unless there's a big endowment or grant, unless there's big that's money right. that somebody's going to give them, and it's not going to come from the media companies because they have no money. So it absolutely has to come from the brand side. Yes, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Right after yeah. Apple uh, buys Disney. <laughs> yeah, keep wishing on that, my friend. <laughs> Keep wishing yeah, on that. Yeah, yeah. All right. All right. Let's Go move down. along. Yeah, let's move along to our next story here. And this comes to us, well, you know, ironically enough, courtesy of The Atlantic. Um, and uh, the the headline here is, what comes after email? Big hat tip here, by the way, to Michael Andrews, who sent us this story. Um, thank you, Michael. And the article opens up by saying, email, ugh. There's too much of it, the wrong kind of it, the wrong people. When people aren't hating their inboxes out loud, they are quietly emailing to say they are sorry for replying so late for all the typos, for missing your earlier note, and for forgetting to turn off auto-reply, and blah, 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 blah. Email is both loved and hated, says the article. Um, In the mobile internet age, of course, checking email is simultaneously a nervous tick, and for many workers, a tether to the office. The person's email inbox is where forgotten passwords are revived, where mass mailings are collected, where pumpkin pie recipes, toddler photos, and absurd one-liners are shared. The inbox, then, is a place of convergence for junk, for work, for advertising, and still sometimes for informal, intimate correspondence. Email works just the way it's supposed to, and better than it used to, but people seem to hate it more than ever. And then the article goes on. It's a quite long article, but really good. It goes through the the history of email, how it got started, and then... It goes into the future, and of course, Slack comes up as an alternative to email and starts to talk about that, and ultimately, the article, without spoiling it, comes to the conclusion that email may be here to stay, and I think this was just a really good, interesting history lesson uh, for me, and also really... We often talk of the power of email here, and I think it's, uh, you know, I, I, well, let me not sort of get to the end first. What, what did you think? Did you, did you think that this is, that email is here to stay? Were you convinced or did you, did you learn something for you or every, you know, my take on this, everything's here to stay. Like nothing dies. It just changes and evolves. And email is just changing and evolving just like everything else, just like print, radio, television, whatnot. This is the weird thing. Total side note. So this whole half of this article is about Slack. The, the you know the work management tool project yeah, management that's tool right. so yeah. get rid of the inbox communicate with your employees in a different way whatnot and it's just come out you know multi billion dollar valuation now sure the yep. odd thing I don't know if you see this the advertising to the side of this is all Slack for me I see Slack advertising oh that's I did not I'm like what is I like really was looking at this is this a sponsored article. Are you kidding me? So, anyways, I just thought that that was oh, weird. that's interesting. Total, total side note on however yeah. they they picked that that whole thing up. Um, so here's what I picked up on this: email is not dying, but all these work management tools that are coming out there, 
Uh, I mean, I just presented at Workfront. I mean, there's all kinds of these coming out, lots of opportunities for you to eliminate email out of your day, if if that is. I mean, what what do they say? Seventy. The average person checks email 77 times per day. Some other estimates are 343 times per day. I mean, come on. (laughs) That's... That just sounds like hell. That's me. Yeah, that's me. Is that you? <laughs> I I check a lot. God, I got to say some prayers for you. Um, <laughs> Thank so, you. <laughs> so, but here's my take. If that's true, if that's true, and I, there's some case studies in here that the, of the person that says, oh, I went down to 58 emails sent over the last year. If that's true, that means there's actually an opportunity for brands that have really compelling emails to cut through the clutter even more than they are right now, which is quite difficult with all the spam and all the systems. They go on, actually, in this article. It's, it's interesting to talk about how much email is created by systems. And we know yeah, what those are, right. a lot of marketing automation of systems, course. email systems out there. And the other thing I thought of, and I, I can't think of some of the examples, but um, I think maybe Thrillist comes to mind, some of the other, what basically started as email-only media companies. They just started as sending an email. And I think that if you were a brand today and you really wanted to go low tech and you wanted to start with something amazing to your customers, you could just get away with an email for a while and sending them something truly helpful to them on a regular basis, consistent basis, and you could start with that. And I think this whole article tells me that the opportunity for that is as good as it's ever been. Well, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think, so, it's funny, we didn't even talk about this, but to to me, rather than spelling the death of email, as a marketing tool, by the way, as a content marketing or marketing, you know, tactic, let's use it that way. To me, this what this told me was, if Slack takes off or something like Slack takes off, that there will be a renaissance for marketing and email. Because guess what? The the whole thing about Slack, at least as I understand Slack, is that it is about business productivity, right? It is about collaboration and business productivity. So it is what a business would replace its email systems with. Yeah. And then email then, if that happens, like if that happens in our company or a company I work for, and all of a sudden, all of my business communications, my meeting requests, my sharing of files, my, you know, conference call line numbers, the back and forth with the me too, and I agree, and let's set up a meeting to do that, all that stuff goes to Slack, that relegates my and dedicates my email box to the things that I want to get that are personal to me. That's right. And so <clears throat> and that provides for a really interesting opportunity because, one, it encourages me to clean it up. And, two, it really provides, as you're saying, cutting through the clutter. Now I'm, I'm not mixing those two ideas. And, and so I think there may be a real interesting opportunity and a real drive, quite frankly, for marketers to say, yes, let's get Slack going. Let's do this because it basically separates those two tasks, the idea of productivity in the workplace and the idea of subscribing to content that we want to uh, in yeah. the other. I think that's a, that's a really interesting trend. Now, Slack may ultimately go that way as well. You may start to be able to get your, you know, your J. Crew catalog through Slack, but it seems like that's not the way it's going. Well, the, I don't the, understand Slack deep enough to know that. Yeah, I mean, the one thing, it was said a couple times in here about email being the last great unowned technology, which I think is, I mean... It is the one the one thing that's truly democratic where you can actually say, hey, I have somebody else's email address and I can send it to them and they will get it. 
whether they choose to do anything with it, that's something sure. uh, something sure. else. But they can actually get it. It's not like I need to have a connection with them. I need to have somebody introduce me via LinkedIn. I need to have them friend me on Facebook. You can. I mean, it's it's almost to the point where I'm a little bit like Twitter because you can actually at somebody. They can totally ignore right. you. But email's a little. But bit it more doesn't personal. sit in your email box. That's right. right. I mean, that's act- the thing. Yeah. Exactly. You'll actually get this. And uh, spam filters are getting better and better. Hopefully, I totally agree with this. And if I, let's just say that, you know, we're like, oh, tomorrow you have to start a new business model, or you're you're working on a brand. It's like, hey, we don't have a lot of resources. We really feel like we need to build our relationship with our customer base. What's the first thing you'd look at? I would look at email first. Absolutely, would look there first. And, yep. and I don't think a lot of companies, I think we're all looking for that next greatest thing. No, every, yeah, everybody says, you know, because they're hearing the email is dead argument over and over and over and over again. And it becomes sort of, you know, just like, oh, right. It becomes sort of a knee-jerk reaction of email. Why would I use email? That doesn't sound very, you know, 2016. It's, and it's, it kind of is. Or it's, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of you know, where it's like it's the same with print, right? You know, somebody was saying to me the other day, it was in Europe, we were talking about the power of print. And they were saying, really, print? We're all about digital these days. We're going all digital. And I said, well, why would you go all digital when there is such a wonderful opportunity for offline communications that can cut through the clutter of what what's is, What there. did they say? And they said, oh, right. Oh. That's, yeah, I guess, you know, well, but digital is the future. And I said, well, yeah, maybe, but it, but, you know, having a personal one-on-one offline experience with someone can be more valuable. And it can be a way to differentiate, and you know they. <laughs> this was the this was the head of digital, so they didn't really love that message. But yeah, no, I, I, it's so true because I had the, um, I had a question was I was doing Q and A at the Workfront event uh, last week in Vegas, and they said, "What's next? Like, what are the big things that?" And I, <laughs> yeah, I, right. and I said, and I said, "You're not going to like this answer about what's next." I said, "What's next is." In person, face to face events with customers, yeah. in person events, uh, email and print. Yeah, <laughs> they're right. like, "What?" I'm like, "Yeah." Because <laughs> look at the Warren Buffett uh, mentality when it comes to stocks. You look at stocks that are out of favor. We do the same thing with our marketing channels yeah. because we have a better t- better chance of getting attention when we do that. But of course, who are we to who are we to say? Who are we? Does anybody just, listen to this? Anyways? We're just no. I don't know. Hello, hello. <laughs> we're just talking to ourselves. <laughs> just two, just two knuckleheads here. It's crazy. Okay. It's crazy. crazy. All right. Our last uh, segment for the show here is from Spencer Stewart. The changing role of the chief content officer. Now, a lot of people, well, maybe not most people, but I'll say a lot of people d- don't know that. Basically, entertainment companies, media companies have had the chief content officer role for some time. Long time. Yeah. And, um, and so now this article, which I just absolutely loved, and there was a lot of work put into this, which was just really interesting, talks about the chief content officer at the media company evolving. Their role is now evolving with these media companies. And the article starts off by saying digital disruption is dramatically changing the way content is consumed, providing for more choices than ever before, of course. And long-form content is evolving with the rise of on-demand, over-the-top services such as Amazon Prime and HBO Go and Hulu and Netflix as all 
As increased mobile consumption has broken through the conventional boundaries governing length and format and even, to some extent, authorship as we start getting into things like YouTube and Facebook and Snapchat um, as uh, content distribution models. And, and it goes on and on and on to talk about really the big trends that are going on with the chief content officer in media companies, the use of big data, the idea of using the role to be more chief storyteller and a senior level position and a more almost a C-level um, uh, position quite frankly. And I'll tell you one thing that really struck me, Joe, and then I sure. totally want to get your opinion yep. on this. One, The one thing was <clears throat> I absolutely loved they used Red Bull as an example. So here's a media company actually looking at a brand's use and, and sort of operationalizing of content as an example of how media companies should evolve. And that was just really telling to me. It was just a really fascinating thing. It was just – it's almost a throwaway line in there. But basically they're looking at Red Bull as sort of the example of what a new media company should look like. And I thought that was really interesting. Well, and I love it because the managing director at Red Bull says we never look at the – we never start the story with the product ever, ever. That's like forbidden. And that's what most enterprises we work with do. Right. Exactly. They start with their own product as sort of the hero of the story. And it's like, oh, my gosh, we're we're starting. So this is – this is really interesting. I think this is a must read for anyone, even though you're right, this is more media centric. But there's so many corollaries to pull out of this. If oh, you're absolutely. Looking, this is it. Yeah. I mean, you could easily replace exactly they're talking about Maker Studios or they're talking about Turner Entertainment. Yep. And you could say Lego or Red Bull exactly. or what Marriott's trying to do. And there's no difference. That's there right. There's no difference. And that's where, you know, you and I have been talking about this for the last five years. It's that the business models are exactly the same in all, almost every way except for how it's monetized. That's and I right. I think that's where, you know, I don't know how many more times we need to talk about it, but it's just that's the Yeah, <laughs> that's I the mean, way well is. there's your and there's your fun, you know, sort of takeaway for the show is if you're looking for a blog post, if you're if you're if you're on deadline to write a blog post about content marketing, go read this article and basically just do a search and replace on media companies and pl- replace them with product companies because it is the lessons there are so apropos for what's going on and the the thing that I get gets me most excited about this is the move to a senior. I mean, I've, I've been talking about this, you know, every week, as you know, I do a weekly letter out to the our intelligent content community. And I've been talking about this for the last, you know, eight or 12 weeks, which is this idea of if we're going to treat content as a strategic asset within the business, it needs to be treated as such as the role evolves into something that is a senior level strategic position. And I see it being a C-level position. You know, so whether we actually call it chief content officer or something else, the responsibilities of managing content as a strategic asset in the business is a business strategy. It is, it deserves and merits a C-level type position. And so as this position and this role and this function become more strategic, I just see it becoming sort of a very clear career path for those that are passionate about content and, and the way it's used to create, you know, customer experiences. Well, that, let me let me uh, dig into that a little bit deeper because it's such an interesting conversation. It, let's just say that you're right that the chief content officer is a real C level position within a within a brand yep. within an enterprise. Does marketing report into that? Is that a is that part of the marketing advertising communications PR group? Is it you know, separate? It's I mean I know like we don't well you know, so, so I, you know I it's know really your take would be yeah it's really interesting that you that you said I mean we, you know <laughs> you know we've been having this discussion offline as well sure. um, and so my my answer to that is maybe 
um, and 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 there it could actually turn into that because I actually do believe that marketing is transforming fundamentally. And somebody sent us an email and and asked us. Is, is this too big a job for marketing? In other words, is content too big a job for marketing and should it actually be something different? So should it be? And our answer, my answer certainly is at the moment, no, because it doesn't exist, right? You know, so this is a bridge too far for most companies to say, well, let's go create an entirely new function at the level of marketing or accounting or legal or operations and call it content because it's just, it's too big a leap for most businesses. So therefore, it naturally fits into the marketing bucket, the company's communication bucket, whether that's PR or brand or demand generation or however you structure marketing. Now, having said that, the idea of marketing evolving into a broader set of customer experiences that, you know, that differentiate the business is bigger than marketing. And that covers customer service. It covers product development. It covers all sorts of things that are broader than the business. And so could I see marketing reporting up to a you know, as somebody who's in charge of of developing customer driven experiences at both top of the funnel as well as after you've consumed the product or service, yeah, I can. Mm-hmm. I, can I can see that actually evolving. Well, I think that's the thing where if you just look at if you if you talk to somebody within a brand and you you said, okay, what does the chief content officer do? I think they would talk about, oh, we need to create the content. We need to distribute that content. We need to measure that content. We need to create, you know, maybe they even say we need to create better customers. But if you really look at what a chief content officer needs to do, it's heavy into what kind of partnerships do I need to set up? How do I integrate with the business at large? You need to really have your finger on every part of the business. And it's bigger than just marketing. It's, it absolutely it's is. It's part of the business. It's it part of the business is. model itself, which is why these people that are talking, you know, if, if you look at this article and all the ones that talk, they actually, a lot of them came from operations roles. Yeah. I mean, they were, these were the chief, like the, the guy that's running, oh, what's the name? The, the guy that's, I don't know if it's the one that's running Turner. Oh, Courtney Holt. There you go. Uh, yeah. EVP of Maker Studios. Yeah. He was um, chief operating officer at, Fox, I don't know which which company with another media company, but he was the operations officer there. So now he's EVP and maker. And if you go in and you look at some of the interviews around um, what Courtney is talking about, is he's he's basically looking at how do we look at talent acquisition, how are we ultimately going to look at revenue generation around this, uh, what we look at acquiring other businesses. I mean, it's the full gamut of sort of a little bit of marketing, but a lot of uh, content strategy, so strategic thinking in that. You've got a lot of a finance and accounting background in that. So it's sort of like jack of all trades. Sure. I mean, look at David Beebe at Marriott, right? I mean, yeah. he was he ran television for Walt Disney and and ABC, um, and you know was a big executive there. And now he's running the content studio for Marriott. And so it's you know it's a it's a big job if if the company takes it seriously. Well, that's the I think that's the thing that we'll see in 2016, where you go, okay, we've already we've seen the Red Bulls, we've seen Lego, we've seen Marriott. Now we're going to see the next generation of these companies invest in this, and they're right. going to go out and they're going to hire the talent, the talent that talent that from the traditional media side, it's no doubt about it. Right. Absolutely so. right. Well, speaking of talent, 
We have one of the most talented companies as one of our sponsors. It's we just... absolutely do. Thank you, sir. Uh, our sponsor this week for This Old Marketing is our very good friends at Demandbase. Uh, they have an interesting ebook called Account Based Marketing Fundamentals Every B2B Marketer Must Know. And as you and I have talked about many times, uh, ABM or Account Based Marketing is like one of the hot. Keyword or hot it's what phrases. the kids are dancing it to is. for sure. It is. It is what they're dancing to. It's you know. It's a, it's, a, it's account it's a based marketing. Account based marketing. <laughs> I don't even know where to go with that, Robert. <laughs> they <laughs> should do a theme song. Somebody should do a GIF. Account based marketing. Account based. Yeah, marketing. then it'll be jumping the shark. Yeah. We don't yeah. necessarily okay. want to go All there right. yet. All right, let me let okay. me go through this. Yes, so I'm here. sorry. <laughs> today's, today's B2B marketers face a wealth of challenges, even with all the marketing technologies helping to reach prospects and track results. Most marketers end up spending their time focused on tactics for execution and not on the strategies these tools support. We know this better than most, actually. Fortunately, there's a better path forward, and it's called account. Account-based marketing. <laughs> yeah, it's in your head now, isn't it? Now it's in your head. Yeah, you, yeah. you hit on something. According uh-huh. to a serious decision survey, 92% of B2B marketers go as far as to call ABM a must-have. 92%? You think yeah. it's that high? It's high. I do. I do. It's it's hot right now. It's, it's, it's hot. And it's the right – It's a right, it's, it's their look. In B2B marketing, it is definitely the right way to think about this. So the other 8% are like kind of have? Kind well, of it's kind of like content marketing, right? They just yeah, don't, they're like, kind of doing it, but they don't doing? realize they're doing exactly. it. Exactly. They don't need them. They're in a monopoly or something yeah. like that. Yeah. In this ebook, you'll learn actionable insights on how account based marketing will pull together those disparate resources into something that makes everyone at your company say, wow. And <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just seeing one of those moods yeah. right now. Yeah. While setting you on a path for a successful 2006, again, it's called Account-Based Marketing Fundamentals. Every B2B marketer must know. Go and download it at www.demandbase.com slash thisoldmarketing. Demandbase.com slash thisoldmarketing. Download it today. And thanks again to Demandbase for putting up with our shenanigans. Absolutely. And thank you to Demand Marketing. Absolutely. Thank you. And thank you for the, as I mentioned last show, the folder level status on your web server. We really love that too. Oh, yes. So, that's yeah. great. You know, it's not often you make folder level. No, it's not do. often. And no, it's often you get some sort of campaign code or something like that. But giving us folder level status makes yeah. me feel proud. It's like, I don't want to brag, but. Yeah, but I got folder level status at Demand folder. That's right. <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, it is now time for your favorite part of the show. It is our rants and rave section where we go off on a little bit of a rant or a little bit of a rave that makes us feel, oh, you know, like you just went to a David Bowie concert or makes you feel like, I don't know, makes you feel like you didn't go to a David Bowie concert. All right. So um, I guess I'm first, aren't I? Because I have the This Old Marketing example this week. So So I have a short rant, I guess it is. Um, it's really sort of in celebration of, of Bowie because I found this article and it just, it reminded me of something and, and I thought I would rant on it a little bit. I'm not ranting about the article itself, although there's some things about it that really kind of annoy me, but, but, but it's more the idea that gets propagated that this article puts out. And so the article comes from Quartz, from QZ.com. Um, and the headline is creative people's brains really do work differently and the article talks about, I don't know why they decided to write about this, 
this week, but the, the article talks about a study that was actually done in the 1960s by a psychologist, and it was a creativity researcher, uh, Frank Barron. And he basically interviewed and put all these people into isolation, which I would love to do a play of, by the way. So I knew about this, this research study, having done some the research into creativity myself. This study that Barron did, he invited all these creators, Truman Capote and William Carlos Williams and Frank O'Connor and these architects and scientists and entrepreneurs and mathematicians, put them basically into a room and they, where they spent several days living together in this frat house in the University of California at Berkeley. And basically, he did this study on creativity with these guys to sort of come to the conclusion of, you know, how do creative brains work versus those that aren't. And it's fascinating. And if you actually go read the study and the materials that came out of the study, it's actually more interesting than this article. But the conclusion that, that this article comes to is, you know, some creative people are more insane, but, you know, quite frankly, some of them are more sane. And some of them are unreasonable, but, you know, some of them have, you know, steely resolve and are completely reasonable people. And some of them are really irrational people, but, you know, some of them are rational too. And basically everybody, right? I mean, which is – and this is what I want to rant on if, if I can, which is this idea that, you know, we tend to separate, oh, they're a creative person versus, oh, they're not a creative person. And that's BS in my mind. It's it's this, you know, there was a reason that we love John Cleese so much that we invited him to come speak and that I was passionate enough about what he was doing to want to interview him. And <clears throat> it's this belief and there are plenty of studies to show this as well, research, properly research, that it's not – there are no such thing as creative people and non-creative people. There are maybe more talented or more developed muscles toward that. But it's – this is an idea is that it's not a position. It's not a role. It's not a person. As Cleese says, creativity is a way of acting. It's a way of operating. And that's the key is because in these days, you know, when we're in business <clears> – <throat> It's important for us to know that we no longer have to be, you know, we don't, we don't have to make the choice of like being a struggling artist or the crazy egomaniacal Don Draper kind of guy to be perceived as creative. We can be creative as a way of operating. And in business, one of our first inclinations, and I see this so many times in the, the time we do advisories and the time we do workshops and the people who come up to me after those workshops, is that what we tend to do in business is outsource creativity. We delegate it. You know, to the crazy people, to the agencies or to the creative weird freelancer with the earrings and all that kind of stuff because being creative is risky. What if it's wrong? What if it doesn't work? What if it falls down? You know, what if it, it – it's what we've done forever in business is to always outsource that idea. Now, I'm not suggesting that you shouldn't or can't outsource great design skills or great ability to create art. But the one thing that will differentiate us as careers in our careers as marketing people, whether we do content marketing or whether we just do straight up marketing and branding or whatever, is that we will be the ones who can balance the creativity with the idea of business strategy. I mean, we talked about it in this show. It's, it's, it's this idea that we can differentiate based on our ability to create new, interesting, innovative things and if we outsource the execution of that, if we outsource all of that, fine. But if we outsource the idea of being creative, we become nothing other than a commodity. And so I always hate the idea when I see articles that sort of put creative people over here in this alien world that we wouldn't understand. And then there are normal people that sort of use creative people for what they're good at. I believe everybody can be creative and I believe we can do both. And I think we have to do both if we're going to survive and adapt to the new business world. So 
that's my rant. You now it's interesting is I'm I'm reading another book by Michael Lewis because uh, you know I got on this whole big the big short mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. So I love the movie, read the book, read his next book or one of his other book, Flash Boys, and <clears throat> I'm reading another book by him called Boomerang, and he's basically talking about the uh, the financial crisis that they had in Iceland, and he was talking about basically I don't know if you call them Icelanders or Icelandic people, but the the, the men from Iceland, he was saying they're they're very much risk takers, uh, and they and they were talking about why they are risk takers. And you you said this very well. It's because they use this muscle, you know, over and over again, year after year. It's not because they, you know, there's anything different in their brains necessarily because of it. It's because when they were outgoing fishing, it is a very risky thing to do. Many, you know, if you're a young uh, person in Iceland, let's say you're 35 years old, you probably, and this is the book says, you probably know two or three people that are your same age as you that have died out on seas because it's right. very risky that right. you just know you go out and you might die today. <clears throat> that's right. just the way the way it is. But it's the same kind of thing where that that's the muscle that they just go and use all the time. And so they get used to that. And it's not a thing that I think that it's not a, not a genetic thing. I don't think. I think it's because that's the way they just use that over and over and over again. So yeah, it's absolutely right. Same exact thing. There I have um, I have two really <coughs> quick articles that I wanted to share that I thought were interesting. The first one is I guess these are both like mini raves, but just because I just thought they were interesting. So the the first one is from Talking New Media. It's called The Power of Audiences, Why Innovative Publishers Are More Valuable Than Ever. And I just wanted to share this one quote in here because it's so funny that it has everything to do with what we were just talking about uh, in the first article. But it says, the publishers that have managed to thrive in this environment, the digital publishing environment, fall into two camps. The first camp is addressing the problem by creating audiences so large that they're simply irresistible to marketers. (laughs) The second is building a highly engaged readership around a specific topic. These specialized publishers focus less on scale and more on creating higher levels of interest and engagement among their readerships, which translate into additional value for marketers. And I think that's so funny. Those are really the two camps that we're seeing on the brand enterprise side. Sure, of course. It's like, oh, we need more audience. We need more traffic and whatever. But those are very, very hard to monetize. But you can. I mean, if you have more, uh, you could you could be successful. Of course, we just talked about it's harder than ever. But I think that we're seeing this trend toward the second is, do we focus on a very particular audience to become, become the leading informational expert for that particular audience around that particular topic? And then we can be successful with the outcomes that we're trying to accomplish. So that's just the one thing. Love and it. you can read that uh, later, it. if you will. Yeah. And this is the other thing this I just thought was interesting because we've talked about him so much on this show. Uh, and a, this was sent to me by many, many different people. So thank you so much for sending this out. Uh, Disney is giving, this is in The Daily Dot. Uh, Disney is giving PewDiePie an entire network to run. <laughs> so Disney's, nice. Disney's Maker Studios announced Wednesday that it's partnered with Felix Gelberg, better known as PewDiePie, <clears throat> to back a network filled with programming that the YouTube star will get to run himself. It's called Revel Mode. And the plan is to develop original shows, games, charitable programs, community events, merchandise, and more. Uh, there's four or five different business models associated with this. It's super interesting, of course, right in line with uh, with my book, Content Inc., that we've good talked for about. But yeah, I just, I just think this is really interesting. Good for him, but also good for uh, Maker Studios. Of course, that's what they do. 
and uh, and super interesting. And he's got there's a whole lineup of seven or eight other YouTubers that are coming in line with this network. Oh, and, and more to, and more to come, right? And more to come. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's totally interesting. And my thought is, Robert, is a brand could have done this just as easily. I mean, like I know it's not going to be YouTubers, right? But brands could do the same thing. And I think that in a lot of cases, like, oh, we'll do guest blogging, but they don't invest in it. They don't formally put together a real network and really put together a business model that are going to work for these people. And you know, they're, obviously, they're doing it at Maker Studio. They've got a good, really good audio, um, model around it. And uh, I just think it would be interesting if you had more brands look at this. And I just don't think there's a lot of them considering anything like this. So no, well, and you know, and it doesn't have to be a list either, right? I mean, you know, I mean. <clears throat> Whether you consider PewDiePie a list or not, there's a whole other tier of people that do stuff out there in your industry that have an audience and that have an engagement level and that are good content creators that would be perfect in this kind of model, right? It doesn't. In other words, you don't have to go spend a million dollars to build a maker studios and get a list YouTubers to do your thing. If you're a smaller business, somebody's doing this well, yeah, almost assuredly. If nobody's doing it well, you better be the one doing it well. But but if but chances are somebody's out there doing it well. You know we've talked about this. Why not go out and buy them? Why not go out and get them? Get acquire them. Get the talent. Get those. Get the people who are who are doing this really well and make it work for your business. It's it's yeah. It, I was I was having a yeah. conversation while I was on the road last week with the chief marketing officer, and I said, look, I think there's a big opportunity in in buying blogging sites, content platforms, media companies for brands. I, of course, we've been talking about it. We've, yeah. we've shared the examples and whatnot. But my real goal for 2016 is not that. It's that they actually do an, – before they launch a content platform, they right. actually right. do analysis of who's telling – like who's that competitive set out there that's already doing it. Like if you were in the media business, you absolutely naturally do this. Right. You say buy versus build. Who's doing it right now? Should we go out and buy something? Should we partner with them? Or should we just build it ourselves? It's just a natural step that you take. And brands don't do this. And it's almost like it's a missing chromosome or something that they just they can't. <laughs> well, that's, they can't, yeah. <laughs> they just can't. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Can't get it, right? I'm like, come on. You got to think about this stuff. So that's what I'm hoping for 16, that they actually get it. We're just a couple of chromosomes <laughs> hanging out. This is the music episode. Yeah, there you go. All right. I think those are awesome. Those are awesome. All right, ladies and gentlemen, this is the, our namesake of the show, of course. It's our This Old Marketing Example, and I'll take you through it really quickly. So, right. uh, you know, have you ever used Caro Syrup? Do you even know Caro Syrup? I know Caro sir- Syrup. I, okay. I don't use it often. I I can almost have you used, used it? it in the past. Yes. Okay. I did not. I grew up in the South, and the only time I ever heard of it being used is the one that I'm going to tell you about okay. now. So I grew up in Texas, obviously, and and um, anyway, so the company, the which basically uh, uh, was the Corn Products Refining Company of New York and Chicago, was formed in 1902 um, and introduced Caro syrup. They had light and dark corn syrup. And basically, they, the chemist and expert syrup formulator named the, the syrup after his wife, Caroline, and coined the name Caro Syrup. And um, basically, 
until the introduction um, of caro syrups, the way that basically you got your sweet syrup was you went to the, you know, you took your jug to the grocery store and you got it filled with these barrels of syrup that were in the back of the grocery store and you would you would fill up your syrup. Well, this was sort of the ability to buy it in a small bottle and be able to use it for whatever you wanted to use, your baking needs, you know, building, you know, putting it on your pancakes or whatever it was. And so they started to, to, to roll this out and it didn't sell very well. It didn't they were having really struggling sales and they built in 1930 they started to produce all of these cookbooks and they put out all these wonderful cookbooks and we've talked about this before with other companies putting out cookbooks the jello idea and all that kind of stuff but what these guys did was they found out and treated and this is what i love so much about this example was they treated the cookbook as the product in other words, they put a huge advertising campaign, a huge marketing campaign around the marketing of the cookbook. And the cookbook had all kinds of recipes, of course, featuring caro syrup, but they, they treated the product, the content as a product itself and gave it the right promotional and marketing budget and strategy to get it out into the marketplace. And then in 1930, enter pecan pie. And that's where I knew caro syrup from, because if you wanted to make great pecan pie, you made it with caro syrup. And that was just interesting because now what happened was it went completely viral. And so this idea of pecan pie, which was made – you had to make it with caro syrup. Um, that was the core ingredient was what they did was they started to discover – this is caro syrup now – that basically their dark syrup would harden up and make this wonderful pie. And so they started to put out just – all of these recipes for pecan pie over the holidays. And they started doing it everywhere. And I love the way this article that we'll link to in the show notes describes this because they basically say it was just like we treat Pinterest today. They started pinning up these recipes and paying for them in ads in newspapers and um, all of these, you know, they put them up on billboards and they put them into recipes and they put them into books. And then the readers, of course, would clip out these recipes and start making this thing, which created this huge demand for pecan pie, which, of course, created a huge demand for the core ingredient of pecan pie, which was the caro syrup. And from they start and then they started replicating that by creating all of these recipes dedicated to all of these different sweets for peanut butter things and all this kind of thing that had to have caro syrup and basically published cookbooks. You could almost argue that more than a syrup maker, they were a, pub, a cookbook publisher from 1950s through the 1980s. And they continue even today. Even if you search for caro syrup today, you'll go to their website and it features the main part of their website features the newest recipes and the newest things you can make with caro syrup. And so that's, uh, I just think, a wonderful example of this old marketing. That's a great, that's a great example. It yeah. makes me hungry for pecan pecan pie, pie. yeah pecan do you say do you, do you say pecan or do you say pecan uh i see i say pecan oh you do that's because you're from the pecan. north pecan pecan should i what should i say well if you're from the south you say pecan you, you put the yeah. uh, you, you yeah. say pecan pie yeah I now i'm from texas pie. and i've been out of texas long enough so i say pecan hmm pecan pie well, everyone can use this old marketing hashtag and let us know how you like to <laughs> pronounce it. You know, on Twitter, it would look exactly the same. <laughs> Anyways, you know, we didn't mention it in your beginning, but we're recording this on uh, Martin Luther King yeah. uh, Jr. holiday. And uh, the one thing that I always like to say 
is and for um, what he was able to accomplish it was tremendous but i studied the i have a dream speech many many for many did you years. really oh, wow. yeah i mean i taught public speaking for four semesters at penn state um nancy duarte actually does a great overview yeah i've seen that a couple yeah. of her presentations on and analyzing i have a dream and yeah. just the repetition say, and never the... watched that yeah uh, or, or listened to that you have to do that. It's just, a, um, and as one of the reasons why I wanted to become a public speaker is because oh, of that's that. cool. So that's really, really cool. Really tremendous. So it's you, a powerful, are you off powerful anywhere, speech. Uh, no, I'm home school? this week. I'm home this week, right. and then I'm off to New York the following week to teach a workshop. So I've got a little bit of time at home to do some writing, do some work on our online training platform, and just uh, generally catch up from my trip from Istanbul. So yeah, so I'm home this week. How about you? Excellent. No, I mean, this is, you know, we, we finished up with the Intelligent Content Conference uh, March 7th through 9th, uh, 2016, Las Vegas. Uh, so we finished up that and then uh, with the programming and now I'm heavy duty into content marketing world programming. So that's there what we're doing the, the rest of the week. Fun, <laughs> fun, fun. Look at everybody's Tearing your eyes out looking at it's, submissions. No, it's really yeah. good. I mean, it's, it's really some amazing presentations, yeah. but it is, it is a, a bit you of can read between the line here, folks. Yeah. It, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's really, really good. Good. I it's, really, really it's like fanti- it. It's fantastic. I love, I love all the videos. Please keep sending them. <laughs> all right, that is it for Joe Polizzi. This is Robert Rose signing off. And you know, do tweet us up at the hashtag This Old Marketing. Um, if I didn't, I wanted to give a big shout out, by the way, for the This Old Marketing example to Richard Rowe. I can't remember if I had tipped him or not at the beginning of that. He was the one who kindly sent that article on. So thank you, Richard, for that. Um, and do continue to send us those articles. Hashtag This Old Marketing on Twitter. We love reading your comments. We love reading the show ideas, all that kind of stuff. Please, please, please continue to give us those ideas. Um, and if you've got a question, send us an email. This Old Marketing at contentinstitute.com. And if you like this episode, number 114, do consider subscribing on iTunes or Stitcher.com. All the links that we talked about will be available in the show notes within the show itself that we publish on Monday night. And then, of course, on the show post at thisoldmarketing.com on Saturday. All right. Until next week, everybody, remember it's your story to tell. You tell it well. We'll see you next week on This Old Marketing. Part of the CMI Podcast Network. Check out all of our shows at contentmarketinginstitute.com.